A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, filmmakers, composers and musicians, and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. In this episode, it's A Brush With, Stan Douglas, the video artist and photographer, one of the leading figures in the field of video installation. Stan was born in 1960 in Vancouver, where he continues to live and work, and studied at the Emily Carr College of art in Vancouver in the early 1980s. In this period, he made landmark early work, De Devise, a slide-based piece in two parts. The first is a sequence in which we hear a recording of Charles Gounod's song from 1850, Oh Ma Belle Rebelle, which used the lyrics of a 16th century poem by Jean-Antoine de Baif. The lyrics appear translated in white text on a black screen. And then the second part is a sequence of close-up stills of Stan's own mouth, accompanied by Robert Johnson's song Preaching Blues from 1936. Stan's lips sometimes appearing to sync with the lyrics while at others not. Stan once described it as a personal response to growing up as a black man in a largely white environment and as he put it being expected to somehow represent black American culture both to people who were antagonistically racist and to liberal types. What you have, he said, is my image not quite syncing up or relating to a very archetypal black figure in Robert Johnson. The work in many ways laid a path for the forms and themes that have appeared in Stan's work ever since, in its bringing together of music and literature, in its elastic references to time and historical periods, and in addressing social issues and constructions like race. It also clearly unpacked the nature of the linear progression of a slide projection, and this is a particular feature of Stan's work in photography and video. He scrutinises the different media he employs and explores how they shape our understanding of reality and often contemporary and historical events. Perhaps his most distinctive innovation, which has been a consistent element of his work since the 1990s, are what he calls recombinant video works, that is, where imagery and dialogue are recombined in sequences generated by a computer so that they have seemingly endless permutations and are capable of running without repetition for long periods and appear to have no beginning or end. Stan liberates his installations from traditional narratives, exploiting the distinctive experience of film in galleries as opposed to cinematic settings. He uses the recombinant technique to reinforce the complexity of his subject matter and the role of subjectivity in notions of truth and reality. He often does this through surprising combinations of source material, geopolitical context and fact and fiction. In Klatsassian from 2006, he nods to Akira Kurosawa's 1950 film Rashomon while exploring the real murder of a Native American man by settlers in 19th century British Columbia. In The Secret Agent, a Joseph Conrad novella originally set in London in 1886 is revivified in 1970s Portugal amid its Carnation Revolution. Stan often chooses to focus on utopian ideas and particularly failed ones and that's one of the elements of his project for the Canadian Pavilion at the 2022 Venice Biennale. Here he continues a body of work he's been making for a number of years drawing parallels between social unrest in the year 2011 including the Arab Spring in North Africa and the Middle East, the Occupy protests in New York, the widespread unrest in the UK following the police killing of Mark Duggan and a riot following a hockey final in Vancouver and the upheavals of 18. 
1848, as middle and working class people allied in protests against a lack of democratic freedoms and the continued dominance of aristocracies in Europe. Characteristically, the Venice Biennale features two strands, epic photographs restaging events from 2011 and a video installation in which rappers in London and Cairo appear to be performing together across continents. The performers are representative of two distinctive but related musical movements, grime and maraganat, that have become associated with resistance and revolt. The video installation, called ISDN after a now outmoded form of transmitting high-quality digital audio over telephone lines, is the latest in a series of recombinant pieces that have music at their heart, from Orchamps from 1993, focusing on a free jazz improvisation, to Luanda Kinshasa from 2013, which creates a fictional 1970s jazz fusion band, but alludes to Miles Davis's relatively underappreciated album On the Corner, and the Cameroonian musician Manu Dibango's 1972 hit single Soul Makosa. My conversation with Stan's a little different to previous episodes of this podcast. The second segment took place in May 2022 with me in London and Stan in Vancouver. But a few weeks before, in April, as the Venice Biennale opened, we met outside the Magazzini del Sale, the former Venetian warehouse where ISDN was being shown right by the Giudecca Canal cutting through the heart of Venice. And there, accompanied by the sound of the canal and the Vaporetti water buses, I began by asking Stan about his work's complex relationship to time, in terms of historical references, musical signatures, the subversion of linear narrative, and much more. Yeah, that works in my work in a lot of different levels. Uh, Time plays itself on both the level of exhibition of technology and thematically as well. Uh, Thematically, in many pieces, I've tried to deal with changes over time, things repeating, things staying the same, and moments that are forgotten, and how these uh, sort of still are present, even if uh, things are not completely in their favor or uh, with their emphasis. I've done many pieces, in this case, suggesting a relationship between 1848 and 2011. 1848, of course, the year of the bourgeois revolutions in in Europe, and 2011 with uh, disturbances around the globe in a way inspired by electronic media, 1848 by print media, in this case by electronic media. However, unlike 1848, which allowed certain democratic reforms to come into place, challenging the old order, uh, in many cases, in most cases, the events of uh, 2011 were policed and forgotten, treated like um, disturbances uh, that didn't really challenge the status quo. But I want to suggest these are actually historical events as well. On the exhibition level, I try to deal with time-based work and with the general notion that time-based work, maybe music, for an example, is a way of uh, depicting or making a model of the way in which people endure time together or share time together. It's kind of a crucial thing in my work that has sort of taken different forms in terms of like uh, rounds and repetitions, these various musical forms, and maybe taking some examples from electronic music from the 1960s, my more complicated or or recombinant work. But one basic thing I've, I've been doing which I discovered in a working from 86 called Overture, forgot about for a while, then rediscovered with a piece called The Sandman, is in an exhibition space, time can't be necessarily linear, beginning or end. It's always people come in at random points, they leave at random points. So the work should accommodate that in somehow. In earlier works, the, the loop was the form of which I did that. Often dealing with the loop itself is a problematic, like an inescapable loop, something that's a problem for the subjects. In other cases, it's more recombinant in a way, trying to look at the reflection of life, how life is complicated. 
how it is perceived differently by different people who see it at different times. And this work here that I'm showing here, ISDN, like other recombinant works, transforms over time. It doesn't demand you see the entire thing, that's just impossible, but it's that you understand what this world is, um, and that's, that's what I'm trying to ask people to do. So it's not a question of, I missed the beginning, I've got to wait for the beginning. It's like it's always in the middle. And that's the condition I think is most appropriate for an exhibition space. And that seems to me to relate directly to a notion of subjectivity and to this idea that we cannot experience anything in exactly the same way and therefore everybody's individual experience of the work is almost a metaphor for the way they experience the world, as it were. Exactly. In fact, um, you've probably heard all the elements after 90 minutes. You've heard and seen all the elements, uh, but you haven't heard them and seen them in all their permutations. When they permute, things are quite radically different. But you have a sense of like um, knowing what this is when you hear it again. So it, in a way, makes the original iteration more elaborate somehow or sort of more full in, of, of content. And again, when you compare notes with somebody who's seen it, you've seen different things, uh, but you've all seen the same thing. And that's the kind of paradox. I'm interested, too, in the way that in this work, it's almost like you've taken the condition of a certain kind of language. So it's a musical language of call and response, effectively. And it's become a kind of filmic or video installation call and response. Yep. In things like The Secret Agent, you're also playing with form. And also, for instance, in your theatre work, you've also done the same thing. It seems to me there's this really interesting tension between different cultural forms and the way they manifest and then yeah. you putting them into new forms in themselves. Yeah, early work from the 90s, I suppose, was trying to deal with spatializing cinematic t- uh, technique from montage to compositing, that kind of thing, synchronization of image and sound. In the case of The Secret Agent, is looking at the novel of uh, Joseph Conrad, which is a, about terrorism in the 19th century, late 19th century, somehow that transposed perfectly onto Lisbon in 1975 with the, uh, the, the terrorist bombings, etc., even the characters like Verloc, who was uh, a Polish man, naturally born in, in the UK, in this case an English man, naturally born in Portugal, these things interface quite quite nicely. So seeing parallels between times, but of course the uh, parallax is, is kind of uh, crucial, like how they're, how they're different. Yeah, and tell me about how the, the kernel of these ideas develops, because I'm interested in, in a way, what comes first. Is it always a, a form of research that we would recognise as, you know, literally reading a book or something like that, or can it be something like an image? What triggers the works? It's often an intuition, like I often have an idea of something which is like a, either a technique or a condition, something I want to sort of deal with, but that I have no idea what the form might take. Then at one point, something clicks and is able to figure out what that is. In 2011, I had an intuition this was something that was kind of crucial and like 1848, and, but I never knew how to like put that in, into form. And it took much later before I could actually figure that out. Only a few years later, when I did the, the Hackney photograph. But in that case, I thought I would be able to use the same method to make other photographs around the world, but then getting a helicopter over Cairo or over Tunis would be kind of unlikely. Uh, there was no f- aerial footage from New York or Vancouver, so that became impossible. But sometimes it's something very, very simple, just like, I guess, 9-11 happened, and I decided to read The Secret Agent by Conrad, uh, the first um, espionage novel and the first uh, depiction of terrorism in literature. I had no idea what to do with that for years until I began researching some work in, in Portugal, and then, then everything clicked. I'm interested in this role that fiction plays, because what we see in the Venice video installation piece is what we think of as something happening live a pair of rappers in both London and Cairo effectively having this call of response but that is in itself a fiction isn't it? It is and it isn't I mean they, they really are performing if they weren't performing and didn't put their, their all in the performance it wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense the idea that they're actually collaborating with people who are thousands of miles away that, that is definitely fiction 
We see them performing in London, the other two rappers in Cairo. They're reacting, apparently moving to the music. And just in nice coincidence, we see them react in ways that are exactly like what the music is doing. This is an effect of your brain trying to make sense of things which are, you know, don't make any sense. Everything is the same BPM, so everything can be synced. But it's kind of, you know, it's surprising when you realize what you can do with an acapella. And I discovered it early on when I worked as a DJ, where you could take this acapella from one song. If the, the tempo matches and, and the, the key is close enough, you can play it over anything, and it becomes a, a new work entirely. I'm interested in what that conjures in terms of the technical aspects of your work and the fact that you will often go to these extraordinary elaborate processes to achieve the works building sets and and so on it seems to me that that's a crucial part but what do you learn through that in a way what does the work gain through that extraordinary intricate process that you go through it's just details which actually evoke a time or a place Uh, for example there's a series of photographs called uh, disco angola and there's a, a coffee mug they had back in the day in the 70s which said kind of has a blue and white Greek motif and says, it's my pleasure to serve you. It's like, that just says New York. Just like stubby beer, beer bottles. In this case, they have Blackberries. Blackberries are obsolete, but in 2020, this was the cell phone. So these details kind of like tell the whole story. Right. In addition to like having a story, having dialogue, the physical culture is also plays a part in evoking a moment in time, a way of life, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Right. All the way through this conversation already, you've talked about this balance between photography and and video in your work. There's no hierarchy there, is there? It it seems to me that they are, on the one hand, separate elements of a practice, but also completely parallel, interweaving, etc. Yeah, people also say, like, Stan, I love your photographs, but your video is really your practice. And I I said, no, this is not what I... So in around 2008, I made nothing but photography for five years, uh, just to sort of prove that wrong. Because... You can do so much with a photograph. It is a different thing. But it does give the viewer more freedom than a, a motion picture, which kind of, in a way, is in control of your attention in the way that photography isn't, or any two-dimensional work, which uh, allows the viewer just to look at what they want to look at, when they want to look at it, and for how long. In a way, the recombinant pieces, looping pieces, also allow that freedom because it comes back again, and you have a second chance to experience it. I wanted to ask you about place as well, because, in a way, your work is almost always site-specific, but it's not site-specific always in terms of the way it's installed or whatever, but it seems to me that site and place are absolutely crucial to the delivery of the final work. Yeah, way back when I, I mean, when I was first getting sort of attention, getting commissions, that sort of thing, I would use the opportunity to learn about the place I'm working in and to make it somehow about that place, whatever, like uh, uh, Berlin, Paris, as I was able to decide what I wanted to do, I would choose those places. And in spite of the fact that there's so many things which are international, global, there's so many things that are very specific. An early thesis of mine was that even genres of technology, TV, are cultural-specific and differs from place to place. The way I discovered this the first time when I worked in Paris and realized that what I knew about TV in North America had nothing to do with European TV, which was there as a public service and not as a you know, commercial enterprise. So this kind of changed my, my thinking quite radically. But place is very important, but however... With this work, my original plan was actually to shoot it in Paris at the place called the Olympia, which is a famous musical venue. And I thought there would be an encounter between these musicians during a sound check. But then the pandemic happened, the Olympia shut down, the Olympia went bankrupt, and so there's no possibility. And then I had the thought, maybe I can do this everything remotely, having people in, in London, people in Cairo, myself in Vancouver. I could direct it remotely, and the thematic would be about that remote relationship over ISDN. In the end, it made sense to really be there, and it was a much better work for my being there in both occasions. But somehow this idea of remote communication 
and remote identification, international identification, is kind of crucial to our, our current moment too. Okay, and so now it's time for part two of the interview. And now we're no longer in Venice. I'm in London and Stan is in Vancouver. So Stan, we're going to move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. And the first one is, who was the first artist whose work you loved? I'd say Marcel Duchamp, actually. Kind of an odd, odd choice. I bumbled upon that work, I guess, inspired first by Rauschenberg and the whole idea of this uh, neo-data that was going around with his, his discourse, and then really loved Duchamp because I didn't understand it. <laughs> and then it became sort of an, an uh, interest in like, understanding what this thing was all about, especially the, the large glass, which was especially hermetic. <laughs> did you see the large glass first in reproduction, or did you see it in the flesh? Exactly, in reproduction. Yeah, and it's curious, isn't it, because when one sees the large glass in reproduction, it's very difficult to get that physicality of the work, and therefore when one does actually see it, you almost have to relearn how to look at that extraordinary work. Don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... That was kind of clear as well, that there was a, a very distinct kind of materiality to it and techniques being used, which also was kind of obscure to me and I was fascinated by. So when I did finally sit in Philadelphia, you know, it was quite an extraordinary experience. Continuing with historical artists, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Um, well, one that I'm always turning back to is Goya, I suppose. I recently just bought uh, a couple of uh, the Capriccios, um, which I realized were, they used to be quite cheap, but they're still relatively inexpensive just to have one. Like they're just, they're available. It's from the first pressing, kind of amazing. But the way in which he could like say two things at the same time, have two registers of uh, uh, expression in, in his work, be commissioned by royalty and, and speak uh, otherwise, which is kind of, kind of extraordinary. And of course, the black paintings were amazing. Indeed. The Capriccios, apart from anything else, that duality that you have in those works is the sort of terror and comedy as well. And he has this extraordinary art of pulling off those different registers, doesn't he? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's something to, to aspire to for me. I also have a, a picture by Lee Friedlander in my studio. And it's like a, he's somebody I really admire because I know I can't do that. Um, so it's kind of, you know, extraordinary work. When you say you can't do that, what do you mean by that? He will take his camera and he will be in a scene and get an angle in the scene, which is just uh, uniquely Lee Friedlander. And I just, I'm, I, I don't see that way. Um, so I'm really impressed by that. Yeah. And I suppose there's that sort of aspect in which that your photography is so minutely constructed. In the first part of this interview, we talked about that extraordinary detail that you go into, the length, that amazing construction you build around each image. Yeah. Whereas, as you say, with, with Friedlander, it's, a, it's an instant quality that does seem remarkable when you see the things in the flesh. I did do a project 10 years ago called Vincent Chinsbury Studio, which was uh, really more about um, making a situation and responding to it. And they're always just one exposure. So I'm kind of interested in getting back to that, that simplicity again. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but of course, the most recent images of yours that I've seen, the ones in Venice, yes. you know, again, there's that detail, the extraordinary process that you went through to construct those images. Can you give us a flavour of just how long that kind of process would take? It does take months. I mean, there's a whole process of pre-visualization and then uh, location scouting, final location. In this case, I was uh, shooting remotely uh, for two locations in, in Tunis and in New York City. And then so getting people to research for me, scout for me, and then getting the right kind of equipment to be in on location to photograph it the way I wanted in the right lighting conditions. And then those were bought back as a, as a plate shot. And then with understanding what space was uh, going to be in play for a staging area, we staged performers in a hockey arena and sort of uh, based on a, on a grid that corresponded to the height of the camera in the original 
and the sort of relative distance in the image, we place people in that space reacting to each other. And actually, it was done in, in three chunks, uh, left, center, right, because the area we wanted to, to depict was actually much bigger than the hockey arena itself. And I've seen, like, for instance, with Orchon, your film, that you make diagrams of how you construct these things. And we're sketches. You think of them in in a very broad visual sense. And and there is a kind of almost scientific construction that underlies the image construction, right? Yeah, some people do storyboards, but I I just do diagrams, do uh, floor plans to figure out where things are in space. That does give me a bit more flexibility when I'm doing a a video or a film, just in terms of, like, knowing where things are and that the camera can be a bit more free to to move around. But, yeah, in Orchamp... We needed a, a sort of a certain specificity because a, a camera had to be at a certain place at a certain point in the music. So if there wasn't a diagram, that, that would have happened. Right. And of course, one of the factors in that is the viewpoint and where you decide where the image will be seen from by the camera, yep. but also obviously by the viewer. And it seems to me that there's a dialogue there in terms of like, you know, who is seeing the image that you're constructing. In that case, there are, there are two cameras. And again, the diagram was there to work out where a camera had to be at a certain point in music for a certain kind of uh, composition, emulating the look of French TV from the 1960s. When they were not doing that, the, a camera would be free to sort of look at other things in the space, to document the performance in, in, in different ways. And that's kind of the, uh, the way it creates a automatic composition of or montage of outtakes in addition to that more formalized perspective. And having those two different perspectives, what did you hope to achieve? Was there an element of critique of the authorial voice of the kind of French TV footage that you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, in those TV shows, it was always very formal, always very fetishizing of you know people's hands, their mouths, their instruments, getting visual sort of details which were interesting but not really indicative of what happens when people perform. And when people perform, they're actually listening to each other and reacting to each other, sometimes preparing to perform themselves, which is part of that performance. Uh, So we see that on the outtake version. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I guess Pierre Huyghe is somebody who's quite extraordinary, just in terms of the formal variety of what what he does. And... Yeah, in some cases, I don't know where these ideas come from. <laughs> and that also is like, fascinating. One of the things about Pierre, I guess, as well, is that, as you say, there's an element of mystery about the work. And I find that as sort of a very profound element of your work, too. You have to engage in a certain level of unknown. Yeah. And it seems to me that's very pregnant in both yours and Pierre's work. Yeah, I mean, it does allow a certain amount of interaction from part of the viewer. They have to think about what they're looking at in order for it to, um, you know, sort of become alive somehow. I guess that kind of goes back to Duchamp also. Even though there's definitely a system in play, there's also a lot of uh, mystery uh, there as well. And I suppose the mystery in Duchamp and again in Pierre is something which has liberated other artists. It seems to me that the consistent thing on this podcast when I talk to artists about influence is that sort of opening the door for them in the sense that, you know, Duchamp and your work are formally different. Yeah. But there are certain ideas in Duchamp that open doors for you and into your work. Absolutely. Can you say something about whether you feel in any way part of a community of video installation artists, as it were? You were very much at the forefront of video installation for certain kind of formal language which developed in the 90s and into the 2000s. Did you feel part of a community exploring those ideas at that time? 
Um, in a general sense, no, but specifically, yes, Dinah Theater is somebody who uh, I showed with early on, and I currently teach with in, in Los Angeles. So she's been somebody I've had a constant dialogue with uh, in terms of um, influence and in terms of like uh, how to do different strategies of, of projecting images in space, uh, which is kind of, kind of a key thing. You know, early on, I mean, when I showed it at Documenta 9, which was my first kind of um, foray into doing video installation, you know, I was right next door to Gary Hill. And um, we kind of lost touch. But in a way, his technician saved my bacon because I had the, the LaserDisc players but I, and I had a computer, but no software to actually synchronize them. And uh, this programmer actually wrote some software for me on the spot to, to do that. So it, that really kind of saved the day. But yeah, Diana's probably the main person with whom I have dialogue. That was one of a number of documenta shows that you featured in, which have actually been very influential as shows and, and in terms of the progress of video installation art. You know, I think uh, Jan Hood's uh, Documenter 9 uh, was really important for putting video art on the same position as painting and sculpture. First thing you see when you go to the main venue was uh, a work by Bruce Nauman. And part of that, Bruce Nauman could not give his video away. But after that, he became kind of a, a crucial figure in, in, in that kind of work. And so people like me, Gary Hill... Bill Viola were being shown, you know, in the main space, not in the sort of basement uh, corner that you'd typically find video art in. Uh, we were being shown only al- alongside the more celebrated painting and sculpture. So for that, it was uh, a great opening for me. I wanted to also talk to you about Okui and Wazel's documenta in 2002, Documenter 11. And obviously that was one where video installation became very prominent but also thematically it seemed that your work could not be sort of more squarely within lots of Okwe's dominant themes of that show. Tell us about your experience on that. I mean I had a a good um, presentation at uh, Document 11, you know a very good space, showing a piece called uh, Suspiria which at that point was actually live being recorded on an on off-site space, broadcast down to the museum in a day and on TV at, at nighttime. Um, so it was kind of a special thing that, that really wouldn't happen again. Unfortunately, in many cases in that show, a lot of video was being shown in inappropriate spaces. Like um, often artists didn't know what to, to demand for, for space. And so you'd have like a feature-like films in a room with no air and no, no seating. It was there conceptually, but it wasn't really there in terms of an experience. Yeah. So s- some people were being shown you know, properly, other ones were, were not. But the thematics of the, the show were definitely quite important in terms of the, the broadness of the international inclusiveness. Let's talk about your studio. What do you have pinned to your studio wall around you as you work? Just kind of randomly, there's a, um, some proofs from the Penn Station photographs uh, from Monaghan Train Hall. That's just sort of pinned there. I just I never, never took it down <laughs> in the main office space. There's a couple of uh, DCTs, which are these um, sort of more abstract photographs I did a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And do you keep other artists' work around you at all in the sense that they're sort of consistent images that you return to and you somehow have, have as a kind of constant guide, as it were? Typically not, but at home I, I do. There's like a combine painting by Soka Otto Knapp, and there's a um, abstract a photograph by me, painted by Raoul de Kaiser, and a reproduction of an Agnes Morning uh, painting from the Tate. Uh-huh. And do you find living with art a sort of reassuring thing? You know, <laughs> I know that it's very different to look at looking at art in a museum to actually living with the stuff. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these works are things which uh, can, uh, keep on giving things to me over, over time. Like, uh, I, can, I can look back at them again uh, at different times of the day, different lighting conditions, and they're doing something different, which is like a, like a quality of great art. 
A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The free app offers access to more than 75 cultural organisations through a single download, ranging from the High Line in New York to the Hunterian Museum and Art Gallery at the University of Glasgow and the Hayward Gallery in London. You've heard Stan talk about his presentation for Canada at the 59th Venice Biennale, and you can investigate the full list of national pavilions and their locations in the dedicated guide on Bloomberg Connects, the exclusive free mobile app for the Biennale. Beyond the pavilions, the app includes details of the other parts of the Biennale, the international exhibition, the Milk of Dreams, with audio descriptions of the historical capsules that define the themes and forms of the contemporary art around them, and the official collateral events across Venice, including those that feature previous guests on a brush with Alberta Whittle and Kahinde Wiley. To explore the Venice Biennale anytime, anywhere, as well as guides to all Bloomberg Connects partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Let's talk about museums and galleries. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most frequently? Being in Los Angeles so often, I often do go to LACMA and MOCA. Those are the two main museums, the Hammer as well, in, in Los Angeles. And are there works that you return to and, and seek out each time you're there, as it were, a sort of rhythm that you have in, in these museums? I guess there might be more works like that in the Getty, mm. uh, whereas there's that great, um, the great Ensor painting of uh, the arrival of Jesus in, in Brussels, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. A very, very large painting for him and just so amazingly detailed. Yeah, and Ensor of, of Ged is sort of like a, a painter of epic scenes. The language is entirely different to yours, but I'm, I'm thinking of those teeming scenes and lots of your images teem with people in lots of ways. Something to aspire to, and, but it went away. Bruegel was more of my, my master in that regard. Yeah. And just the way he could like sort of have different uh, temporal zones in the same uh, spatial image. is something that's, that's been a great influence on these uh, last 10 years of doing these uh, more crowded epic scenes. Can you say something about how you construct them in terms of the individual characteristics of the figures? Because they're each directed, aren't they? Some more than not. Some are just basically given instructions, like uh, do this, do that. I don't ask people to pose because you ask them to pose and they're not, not actors. They really can't, can't do that well. But give them a task and it's much easier. Say in, in some cases they'd be doing it done in groups so they have an interaction which uh, sort of adds a, a certain quality. But there are some other images like um, the ones from Penn Station there's a couple of crowd scenes which are quite quite close. In that case, for resolution, I had to shoot um, almost every person individually, uh, but still trying to keep a sense of what they were doing as a crowd. So I just shoot them in layers, like first the nearest person, and then go back further and further and further, and direct them uh, as I went. When you're embarking on a project which deals with the history of a place like that, it must be almost daunting to address that and to try to find the sources that you want to then make into an image. Can you say something about how you follow that process through? I work with a researcher, Faith Musang, and she um, went through thousands of uh, mentions of Penn Station over the 50-year period it was open and operating and looked at thousands of uh, newspaper clippings from the the local papers, reduced that to hundreds of uh, articles, and from that I sort of just got a sense of what was happening there in everyday life. One thing I kind of asked her about was, like, is there a bias you have about having, like, uh, political uh, activism, anarchists, communists uh, uh, being in uh, Penn Station? She said, no, that's just how it was. In the early part of the 20th century, uh, there's a lot of political unrest, and, I mean, the reason why we have the, uh, you know, the New Deal took place is that... uh, Communism and socialism were real threats to the capitalist system uh, in the U.S. 
so, so from that, there's a few stories which were quite uh, compelling to me. Very specific characters like uh, Celia Cooney, who was uh, the so-called bob-haired bandit, this uh, petty criminal that the, the cops couldn't keep, and she was like greeted by thousands of uh, admirers or curious people because if you couldn't see her on TV, uh, she hasn't been photographed, so they want to see what she looked like. Also, Angela Harrington, who was like a labor organizer in the South who'd been sort of arrested for insurrection uh, in Georgia, I believe, and was on a chain gang, but he was released on bail that was collected by donations as small as 25 cents. And he eventually was released by the Supreme Court of the United States. And the thousands of well-wishers were there at Penn Station to see him. And then finally, there was uh, uh, this Burt Williams, who was a, a vaudeville performer, who was stuck in the station because of bad weather with, with all the performers who typically would use that as their way of getting around the eastern seaboard. And because they were stuck, he decided we should have a show together. And that's what they did. So that was a thing I just had to make, even though it's complete fiction. We do know who was touring on that day. And so facsimiles of their, their performance craft was you know, being seen in the picture, even though it probably didn't happen the way I'm depicting it. Right. But you also show two different aspects of that performance, don't you? You see the, as it were, the night before and the performance itself. So you give a flavour of the entire narrative. Exactly, yeah. But it's, again, kind of extreme. They wouldn't be probably not sleeping in the concourse, which would be quite cold. Um, but it was just a great opportunity for, you know, a certain play with light and, and the different architectures. Indeed. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? When I got out of art school... As many people are, I was a little bit isolated, but uh, I did find this community of poets in the Kootenai School of Writing who were originally part of the school in a place called Nelson, B.C. Government cutbacks uh, closed the school. They moved to Vancouver. They were still doing seminars, but they were more of a, a writer's collective. And so this group was my first um, sort of intellectual scene in which we'd have dialogue and talk about artist work and writer's work and that kind of thing. And I got to know what they were, their interests, which was something called language writing, kind of a materialist lyricism that they really were fascinated by. Some are quite well known today, uh, like Kevin Davies is quite a well-known poet. You know, others, uh, Sienna Guy was part of that scene as well, who's a well-known uh, philosopher and, and cultural critic. But yeah, all those people were, you know, quite extraordinary. And did that in a way, even though, of course, your your artistic language is a visual medium primarily, did that encounter with those people create a kind of framework for your own thinking about your work? Absolutely. I, I would have to, you know, tell them what I do because they were not that familiar. But also there are commonalities, certain uh, themes in terms of writing and theory, which we could share and, and talk about. And so it was kind of critical for me. And that's a nice introduction into our next question, which is which writers or poets you return to the most? Samuel Beckett is the one that I always uh, always talk about. And quite early on in the late 80s, 88, I did an exhibition called Samuel Beckett Teleplays. I first encountered the work when I was working as an usher in a theater in Vancouver, my first job, I guess. And um, there was a production of Endgame, which I, I saw like 10 times. And um, I realized it was not a very good performance, but it was a really interesting piece of writing. And sort of like I began you know, looking at, at Beckett. Later on, I didn't realize... He was still alive in the, in, in the 80s, and I found a book called Company uh, that was in the bookstore, which was, like, brand new. And I thought, well, he's, he's still around, still writing, kind of, and I basically read everything. And in that process, I um, encountered something called Not I, which is, like, a famously performed by Billy Whitelaw. It's this mouth disembodied, floating in space, trying to talk itself into being. And this, I would have to say, is my favorite work of art. 
Ah, that's really interesting. Can you tell me more about that? Because as you described it, it made me instantly think about De Devise, which is your work, which is actually, your, I think, the only work of yours which features you, and it's you not quite lip-syncing to Robert Johnson, right? Right. I do have um, cameos now and then, like a Hitchcockian cameos, but yeah, that is the one that features my mouth, exactly. But I had no idea what the Beckett piece until uh, a few years later, oh, five years later. Right. Um, that's just coincidence. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah. Just while we're talking about Beckett, the very first piece I ever saw of yours was Win, Place or Show. And it seems to me yeah. that that was a profoundly Beckettian work of yours. Yeah, I mean, the whole Beckett procedure of having a um, repetition with difference, uh, as Martin Nelson used to call it, like Act 1 and Act 2 of uh, Waiting for Godot, where basically the same thing happens, but uh, which is nothing happening, uh, but it, nothing happens differently in, in both <laughs> cases. And so, again, with Win, Place or Show which does rhyme with Waiting for Godot, we do have the same scenario takes place, but it repeats differently. And I guess that was the kernel of what I later did in, in my recombinant projects, where I'd make these works that are like machines that uh, have elements that, that recombine over time. And the piece in Venice, in a way, is also an adaptation of that, where the music is, is changing over time. Indeed. And in Wind Place or Show, of course, there's a TV reference as well, isn't there? Because it's that sense that we're watching a scene from a television drama, and we see the same constituent elements, but as you say, they are combined in new ways each time. Right. I mean, it was inspired by this TV show called The Clients, which was kind of about working class people in Vancouver. But um, they were listening to the radio and they're waiting for the horse races to come on the radio. And typically back then, I would um, have live radio being broadcast, sort of like classical music typically, that would be kind of filler music before this, the, the main event, the horse races came on. But broadcasting has changed since I made that piece, so getting live radio was difficult. For a while, I began using internet radio, but finally I just got a, made a, like an epic recording of 10 hours of radio of the sort I wanted, and that gets played. But it was kind of interesting when there was a completely random element of live radio being broadcast in the piece. Right. While we're on the subject of literature, I also wanted to ask you about the fact that you use Remembrance of Things Past in Overture, which is another work of yours. Can you talk about your use of that work? Because it's also combined with a really sort of landmark work in terms of film at the same time. Yeah, Overture uses the Overture from uh, In Search of a Lost Time by, by Proust, uh, in which um, the narrator is talking about not being certain if they're awake or asleep, and some images of train travel as well. This combined with some early footage shot by the Edison Film Company of a trip through the Rocky Mountains where it comes out of a tunnel, goes down a section of track into another tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. And so that repeats. There's three pieces of film that I used and then six pieces of voiceover. And so even though you're seeing the same film, you're hearing voiceovers which sound similar to each other with similar themes, but they're, they're different. So you, you as a viewer are uncertain if you've seen what you're seeing just as the uh, narrator is unsure if they're awake or asleep. And, of course, the, the uh, moment when the image goes dark in the tunnel, you become aware briefly that you're actually in an empty room looking at a blank wall before it comes back and, and captures you again. So, in a way, what would be the metaphor for sleep, darkness, actually is the moment of consciousness. Right, absolutely. But also memory, right? I mean, again, obviously, you know, Proust is most famous for that description of memory and the notion of memory. And that seems to me sure. to be such a governing element of your work in terms of all sorts of forms of memory. In that case, too, I mean, it's an abiding theme because we have this work which is a consideration of human memory and, and habit, voluntary, involuntary memory in, in Proust. But in the images, you're seeing mechanical memory. You're seeing exact mechanical reproduction of, of a scene. And so much of our experience of the world now is based on images that are captured mechanically, you know, photomechanically or, or technically, um, a place we've never seen. And we think we know something about that even though we've never been there. 
And lastly, in, in terms of literature, we can't not talk about Melville and, and The Confidence Man, which was a part of Journey into Fear. Can you say something about that? Because it, interestingly, Ellen Gallagher, who came on this podcast, was profoundly stirred by The Confidence Man and the extraordinary narrative and narrative approach of Melville in that novel. I guess the, the main feature of The Confidence Man is that you're not sure uh, if you're looking at one person or seven people. And they're appealing to people's sense of uh, charity or greed to swindle them out of their money. Um, so just the uncertainty of like um, who's speaking, who's talking, um, who is there, that uncertainty is kind of a, an amazing quality. Let's talk about music, another big subject in your work. I wanted to begin, we talked about De Devise, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because it seems to me that very early on in your work, you were defining the sort of framework of your practice quite precisely, but incredibly openly. Can you say how you came up with that idea? I have been doing slideshows previous to that, and in a way, they were meant to self-destruct because uh, I was using this technology that was very specific to one company in Vancouver, and I knew that at a certain point, I would not be able to use those machines anymore, and um, I couldn't play those works anymore. And many of those pieces are, I consider to be a juvenilia, but unfortunately, this, this other piece, uh, due to these, I thought was quite interesting, and so I had to sort of rebuild that, which took quite a bit of time. Automatopias like that as well, also slides, which I had to reconstruct because that technology I originally had uh, was not available. But due to these, basically, the V's device is like a an emblem, uh, sort of in- indicating some kind of like identity or, or desire. And in this case, it's an image of non-identity, the almost sort of reverse ventriloquism of me trying to lip sync with Robert Johnson and the translation of a blank screen of an art song about uh, someone's desire for an indifferent uh, beloved are two kind of conditions of, of sort of desire and identity that I was trying, trying to explore. But the interface of these things with technology has been an abiding thing. As I said with Overture earlier, it's, you know, the, the question is, like, how do we understand the world, negotiate the world, when so much of our experience of the world or understanding out of it is, is through technology? Yeah, indeed. And one of the things I was really conscious of seeing that film was that my brain and my eye wanted to almost act independently. And again, that seems to me to be an interestingly fertile territory for, for film and video to explore. Yeah, the way in which it um, doesn't always sync up, the way in which your, your brain makes these connections. And this is kind of a feature like, that comes back later on with the recombinant pieces where elements are, are recombined. And I do have a sort of intuition about what would make sense, what would not make sense. But in the end, really, it is our brain which makes these things make sense, even though these things aren't really connected. Even work like Luana Kinshasa, where we see these, these people who are supposedly playing together, they actually never did play together. We had one group of musicians one day, another, another day uh, performing to playback. And th- those recombined through editing uh, into what appears to be a seamless live collaboration. Let's talk about Luanda Kinshasa. It, on the one hand, appears to be a reconstruction of some kind, but it's not, is it? Can you say something about that? Yeah, it's kind of a um, homage to a place called The Church, which was a Columbia studio in midtown Manhattan where you know, many famous recordings were done, from Bob Dylan to, uh, to Miles Davis himself, who did almost all of his records in that studio. We found a desacralized church in Brooklyn that we dressed to look like the other, other space, but also to look like the studios used by the Rolling Stones for the Jean-Luc Godard film. Anyway, that's kind of um, 
kind of taking the piss out of the Rolling Stones because in that film, we see them over days and days trying to, to compose Sympathy for the Devil, and they just can't figure it out until the Congos come in. But in this case, I mean, and, and the camera movements are a bit more elaborate, but kind of inspired by the movements of Godard's camera in that film. The color palette is also exactly the same. People who are kind of film savvy will often recognize that right away. But really, in this case, through this technique of uh, montage, we have sort of a geyser of music, sort of un- unending uh, six-hour jam session where new music is, is, is uh, spewing out. That's right. And of course, one of the wonderful things about that is that one thinks one's seeing the really, really long jam and then suddenly something appears and you go, hang on a moment, have I, have I seen that before? Yeah. Can you say something about what you were doing there? Because again, it's playing tricks with us as viewers to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, something that was inspiring quite a long ago was the Kuleshov effect. This experiment done by Lev Kuleshov where he would show an audience's Russian filmmaker from the 20s a series of clips. There would be a, a sort of a, a, a shot of a, a viewer and then various images. So there's like a, a coffin, uh, some food, a dog, a young woman. And people would be sort of admiring of uh, the range of expression of this actor who was like watching these things. But it's all exactly the same shot. And so it just proves that uh, cinema is really a contextual medium and a retrospective one where what you see now, it changes according to what you just had previously seen and what you'll see coming up. And so it uses that technique in a very, very, very broad way. So these things are becoming new ideas in a new context. In that film, of course, you had contemporary musicians. There's the musician and artist Jason Moran, for instance, who's playing Fender Rhodes, but he's dressed as if he was in the 70s. So there's an element of, in in terms of the costume, set dressing, etc., where you are casting us back to a very particular time in which Miles Davis made On the Corner, for instance. Yeah, and the titles like uh, Luana Kinshasa was kind of inspired by how he would name songs after African countries going through a uh, liberation struggle. And of course, in the 1970s, around 73, 74, when he made On the Corner, I guess 72, 73, he was in New York City. And if he was kind of like clued into the underground disco scene, he might have heard uh, Mano de Bango's Sol Mucosa and might have tried to include Afrobeat into that combination. Because first, in the first instance, he combined jazz funk with uh, Indian classical music uh, and assumed that would be a pit with the kids. And of course, it was marketed to jazz aficionados and no one liked it, even though it's one of my favorite records. Mm. Uh, but I thought the next step for that would be to uh, include uh, Afrobeat. And so that's what we do in the one in Kinshasa. And was the kind of approach that you took to that at all informed by the fact that you were a DJ as a young man? You know, are you sort of still DJing effectively there? Are you at the decks, as it were? <laughs> I guess that is a, a cultural experience which changed my outlook at, uh, quite directly. I realized that you could um, use existing cultural material as your material for making new cultural material. Um, so using, you know, these records to make new music. That was an extraordinary realization for me, which really informed, you know, what I did ever since. I'd like to talk a bit more about film because apart from anything else, your theatre production, Helen Lawrence, is obviously profoundly influenced by film noir, but it doesn't necessarily locate it within a specific reference. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it is kind of a generalized film noir. I mean, the whole thing is quite confusing. You're looking at people on stage, you're looking at those people on stage being filmed by each other, and then their images are being comped live into virtual sets, which are then projected downstage to the audience. So you're seeing these two things uh, at the same time. So that would be quite confusing. To, it is quite confusing to most, most viewers. And But having the uh, sort of knowledge of certain cliches of film noir give people something to hold on to so they can actually have a reference point to sort of go with the flow of the narrative. But yes, yeah, more of a generalized film noir. But my main realization about that was that the behavior of people in film noir, I mean, this is in a way the post-traumatic stress 
they've experienced very awful things uh, during the war at home in uh, you know states of uh, black markets and that, that kind of thing. And they've done things that they aren't proud of. And so this accounts for the behavior of the, the femme fatales and the tough guys we see in film war. And so I was connecting all of this to the post-war period as um, things becoming normalized after that, that period. And the whole sort of the main thematic is about a, a corrupt police uh, chief who wants to behave as if it is the sort of the, the wartime period when everything has changed quite, quite dramatically. And also people who are involved in, in various kinds of criminal activity are trying to make that uh, made legitimate at some point. And again, in another piece, Klatsassin, you connect a very specific filmic reference to a broader cultural story. And, and can you say more about that? Yeah, Klatsassin, I... Um, it was during the time of the, the Iraq War. Often I, I don't really say what the work is about until somebody tells it back to me. And when somebody from Art Forum uh, sort of uh, called me for an interview and says, am I overreading this when I think that this is a reference to the Iraq War? I said, no, it's exactly what I had in mind. Because I thought during the gold rush in British Columbia, which was happening sort of famously up in Barkerville, there had to be some uh, reaction of the indigenous people to all these foreigners coming into their territory. And eventually there was this uh, great insurrection, the uh, uh, Chilcotin War that took place, where they were killing road builders to build a, a road from Barkerville to the, to the coast. And this was just like a, kind of a perfect, uh, a perfect thing. It should be taught in high school, but it's not. I don't know why, but it's a very important thing that up north is commemorated. Anyway, what they did is they treated the road builders' uh, assassinations not like uh, a political activity. And when they called Klatsassin, the chief, in, and it means uh, we do not know his name. When they called him in for uh, what he thought was uh, peace negotiations, they tried him for murder and, and hung him. Uh, all but one of the characters who escaped and in the way that that character features in, in my piece. Anyway, I focus on the trial, which in historically was done by a guy named uh, Judge Begbie. And the format of that is like um, uh, Rashomon by Kurosawa, where we have different perspectives on the murder that is changed based on perspective of the person who's talking, often with a certain amount of self-interest. And all that is wrapped within a, a tale being told uh, in a bar about having witnessed events around that. that. So it's like interlocking, nesting stories in, in this piece. And in a way, Rashomon, it's become a, such a landmark, hasn't it? I wonder when you take on a work which is sort of universally loved within film like that, is it slightly fraught in a way because it's something which has been interpreted in so many different ways? Yes and no. I mean, if I'm confident about the idea, I'll just go ahead and do it. Um, one thing that I was concerned about was uh, The Sandman, which was referring to the E.T. Hoffman story and the, uh, the Freud essay about uh, the uncanny. Um, and I thought, this is just way too much baggage. But I, at the end, I thought, no, this, this idea is good enough to, to go ahead with. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Probably a painting by Agnes Martin. I mean, one from the 70s. I had this experience in the 90s when I saw one of those paintings at her, her Paris dealer, and I was in the space, and as I walked on the space, this, that gallery had a huge skylight, and the, the light changed. And I felt like I was in a different room based on that. So the way in which those paintings are so present in the space, reactive to light, they're very much in the room with you. And as opposed to being something which takes you to a different place, like a picture, there's a winter someplace else, a Magnus Martin painting from that period is, you know, in the room with you now. That's so fascinating. It's extraordinary, that power that they hold, isn't it? Because it seems to defy the logic of... The materials, yeah. and it seems somehow to sort of operate outside of what the physical realities of what those things are. Yeah, it's so so simple with such a light touch, but um, they do have a profound presence. And lastly, what's art for? What's art for? <laughs> Artists who make us understand things in a way we never thought possible. 
or to give us an experience we can't have any other way, like that Agnes Martin painting. Stan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Okay, very welcome. Stan Douglas's project for the Venice Biennale 2011 does not equal 1848 is in the Canadian Pavilion in the Giardini and the Magazzini del Sale in the Sestiere of Dorso Duro in Venice until the 27th of November. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A huge thank you to Stan Douglas. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.